0: We, just, we had a tremendous week this past week at Vacation Bible School. We had um, about 280 total kids and about 120 staff, uh, adults and youth, who were helping. So about 400 or so every day in the building. And I want to thank you who were part of that. Uh, what a tremendous week uh, week it was and uh, I think one of the best we've we've ever had. It just was a powerful week and so many of you contributed through the time that you gave and through the um, things that you provided to make that week possible, so I appreciate that. It is so uh, grateful that, uh, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to impact so many young lives with the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, if the seeds we, uh, but if the seeds we planted are gonna continue uh, they must be watered, and they must be nurtured. And so that's where all of us come in in the life of the congregation. Uh, it's up to parents to give spiritual leadership in the family, but it's up to us to be encouragers of that. And we have a, lots and lots of young families in this congregation, lots of kids. And so as a whole church body, it is our privilege to be an encourager to these families, to the kids who are here and uh, I hope that you will continue to do that as, uh, as they grow in their walk with Christ. I'm reminded of some words in the scripture that says this about our Heavenly Father. It says, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. You are my sons and daughters this day because I have chosen you. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. And I think this is what the Bible is saying, through the, through the love of spiritual earthly uh, family, God gives a glimpse of his everlasting love. The guidance, the wisdom reveal to us the eternal life that God provides for us in heaven. And in following um, uh, the example of Christ, we become more like our Lord. We grow his heart in us. And so and I encourage you to encourage that in the lives of others in our church family. And we're going to continue the summer teaching series that we uh, are in the middle of in the New Testament book of Galatians. Uh, Today we're going to be hearing once again St. Paul's uh, central theme that we are put in a right relationship with God, not by what we do, but by our faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, stay tuned uh, in a few moments for that as well. Well, let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? God of majesty and power, you have given us sufficient knowledge of yourself and your will in the words of Scripture. However, we confess that so often we ignore your clear teaching about what we should believe or do or hope for. Instead, we follow our own impulses and our own dreams. Forgive us, we pray, and open our minds and our hearts once more to your truth, so that we may draw closer to you, to your plan and purpose for our lives, and to your kingdom, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is uh, message is the sixth in this series, and today we are going to turn a corner in our journey through the New Testament book of Galatians. This short letter of six chapters, written by the Apostle Paul, is really divided into three sections. The first part is uh, what we call the personal section. It's much more personal information about uh, the apostle and about the believers to whom he's writing. The second two chapters, three and four, is what we call the doctrinal uh, section. And it's much more theological in nature. And the last section, chapters five and six, is more practical. So as we begin this doctrinal section of the book, I need to tell you that there's going to be some verses and that are fairly intricate and some arguments that may be a little difficult to understand, but the main point of the entire letter still remains very clear, and that is the Apostle Paul returns again and again to the one central question, and the question is, are we in a right relationship with God by the things that we do or by what God has already done for us? Now, just keep that in mind as we work through the middle section of the book. Every verse, every argument ultimately makes its way back to that core issue. It's a question of faith versus works. It's a question of grace versus the law. And the very heart of the gospel is at stake in this discussion. So let me begin with a simple theological quiz. Uh, It's a multiple choice question. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? How good do you have to be to go to heaven? A, pretty good. B, really, really good. C, better than Uncle Joe. Or D, perfect. The answer is D. If you want to go to heaven, the Bible says we have to be perfect. I don't mean sort of perfect. I don't mean mostly perfect. I don't mean 80% perfect. The kicker in all of this is that 99.9% of the world believes the answer is A, B, or C. And if I'm pretty good on a relative scale of goodness, God will surely admit me to heaven. And most people are quick to compare themselves to Uncle Joe or Aunt Jane or the punk kids down the street. There's always an easy comparison because we usually compare ourselves to someone who we think isn't as good as we are. But that's not what God does. When God makes a comparison, he compares us to his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. In the first 14 verses of chapter 3 of Galatians, the Apostle Paul puts forward three arguments that lead us back to that key question, how are we made in a right relationship with God? Is it by our faith or is it by the things that we do? And his answer is that human experience, the ex- uh, from the human experience, from the example of Abraham and the curse of the law, all lead us to the same conclusion. We are in a re- right relationship with God only by grace that comes to us through faith in Christ. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Paul says, O foolish Galatians! Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ's death, Jesus Christ's death, was made made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not, it's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. And Paul, in these first few verses, wants to know who has cast an evil spell on these believers, and it's a reference to the realm of black magic and refers to something like a spell or a hex or the evil eye. In Paul's mind, it is so inconceivable that these Galatians would turn back to uh, to, to law-keeping after having come to Christ by faith and experiencing freedom. Um, He just can't believe it. He thinks that someone has bewitched them. How else can you explain leaving the freedom of grace for the slavery of the law? He then lists four consequences of this grave error. First, he says, by leaving God's grace to return to the law, the Galatians were ignoring the cross of Christ. They had forgotten how clearly Christ had been portrayed by Paul's preaching. So powerful was the truth and the picture Paul painted for them that the Galatians felt like they were almost there when Christ died. To leave that kind of freedom and grace to abandon the Christ who had died for them was inconceivable. Secondly, by leaving God's grace, they were contradicting their own experience. Paul reminded them that they had been saved by grace through faith. Would they now conclude that God saves by faith, but somehow they have to continue to try to earn that? Will they go to heaven because God helps those who helps themselves, a a famous phrase that we hear in our culture today. The thought to Paul was absurd. And then third, by leaving God's grace, they reduced their suffering to something meaningless. No doubt these young believers had suffered a lot at the hands of some of their former friends who were still in pagan religions. Surely they'd been laughed at, they'd been ridiculed, some had lost their jobs, some had been put out of their homes for the sake of Christ. Were they gonna count all of that as meaningless? To go back to trying to earn their salvation through the law? And then fourth, by leaving God's grace, they were denying the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. God had worked miracles among them, in them, personally. They had seen the power of God internally and externally. Their prayers had been answered. Lives had been changed. Old habits had been broken. Bad relationships ended. Marriages were saved. Families restored. Many came to know Christ. Sins were forgiven. All of this by the grace of God at work through the Holy Spirit in them. Will they give all of that up now and deny it all? That's the choice that they were making. Paul's point in these opening verses is to remind them of all the wonderful things that God has already done for them. And all this came by grace through faith in Christ. Had they forgotten all of that? They were saved by faith in Christ and now by the pow- lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. How could they go back? How could they even possibly want to go back to the Old Testament law to improve their position? Listen to what Paul says in verses six through nine. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing that Abraham received because of his faith. For his second argument, Paul uses the example of one of their ancestors in the faith, and that was Abraham. This was a genius because the Judaizers, those who were trying to pull the Galatian believers away from Christ, would have considered Abraham the father of the Jewish people. Paul's point in verse 6 is that Abraham was saved by faith, When he believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And we can read about that in Genesis chapter 15. The chronology here is important because Abraham is circumcised in Genesis 17 and the law is not given to Moses until 430 years later. So that means that Abraham back here was saved by his faith long before the law came into existence. Paul uh, then expands the point in verse seven by pointing out that anyone who believes the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is a true child of Abraham. Now in Paul's mind, spiritual ancestry is more important than physical ancestry. There are physical descendants of Abraham who are not spiritual descendants because they don't believe the good news about Jesus. And there are Gentiles, non-Jews, who are true sons and daughters of Abraham because they have believed In Jesus Christ. The thought is expanded further in verses 8 and 9 when Paul says that God always planned to make the Gentiles part uh, right with God by faith and he uses um, a, a kind of an interesting phrase to set forth this truth. He says the scriptures look forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said all nations will be blessed through you. That phrase, all nations will be blessed through you, comes from the call of Abraham, which we can read about in Genesis chapter 12. But you may be asking, in what sense is that connected to the good news about Jesus Christ? Well, in God's original call, there was three parts. The promise of land to Abraham, the promise of a great nation that would come from Abraham and his descendants, and the promise of a blessing that would come through Abraham and his descendants to all the nations all the nations of the earth would be blessed. If you fast forward 2,000 years, you come to the very first verse in the New Testament, which reads, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Jesus was a true son of Abraham in the literal sense that he descended from the line of Abraham. But before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples to go out and preach the good news to every nation. And we call that the Great Commission. The Great Commission joins together the good news about Jesus Christ and the call of Abraham. It was always God's intention to bring all people to faith. And it was always God's intention to include the nations of the world in his plan to bless the world. We can draw, I think, several important truths from this. First, the plan of salvation in every age is always by grace, through faith, not our human efforts. God has only one plan, not two, three, four. God has one plan. Don't let anyone tell you that you can be saved in different ways. It's always by grace, it's always through faith, and it's always apart from human effort that puts us in a right standing with God. Secondly, God's plan to include all nations means there's no room for racism or bigotry or prejudice in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no room for excluding people on the basis of racial heritage, ethnic origin, language, appearance, skin color, or any other issue. God never wanted a one-race church. He's always intended to redeem his people from every tribe, tongue, clan, kindred, and nation. He wants his church to be multicultural. God's church is as big as God's heart. And at best, the church should reflect the bigness of God's heart. It means we put an end to racist comments and prejudice against people who aren't just like us. There ought to be no room for that in the body of Christ. Third, this is this is the foundation uh, that really began world missions back in the 17 and 1800s. Um, you know, God God's plan to draw people from every nation uh, fed a, a huge movement in this country of um, sending missionaries around the world. And now, what we're seeing is. Um, some of the strongest christian nations on earth are in africa and asia and they are sending missionaries to us because we're no longer the christian nation we once, once were let's move on to listen to uh verses 10 through 14 but those who depend on the law to make them right with god are under his curse for the scriptures say cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in god's book of the law So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law, and when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scripture, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Verse 10 explains why keeping the law can never put us in a right relationship with God. First, the law demands performance. The law demands complete performance. And thirdly, it demands continued complete performance. We must continue and to, to do everything the law uh, commands if we're going to be made right with God by the law. Living by the law isn't something that we can pick and choose. The laws we want to obey, either we keep it all the time or we don't. God doesn't grade on the curve, it's kind of a pass-fail. Keep the law perfectly 100% of the time and go to heaven or just mess up once and you don't. Doesn't leave a lot of room for margin bear, you know? Perhaps an illustration to make the point. Suppose there's an eccentric rich person who offers a million dollars to anyone who can swim from San Diego, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. The rules are simple. You get in the water at San Diego, you get out when you reach the beach in Honolulu, you can't stop, you can't rest, there's no one that can assist you, you can't use mechanical or electronic devices to help you, you have to swim straight through without stopping. If you do, you win a million dollars. If you don't, If you don't make it, if you don't follow the rules, you get nothing. On the appointed day, no one shows up because it's too impossible of a task. So the rich person raises the prize to 10 million. Still no takers. Finally, he raises the total to 100 million dollars. 10,000 people show up. And they all uh, are after the money. Even if they can't swim that well, they, they figure, what can you lose? So the bell sounds, everyone hits the water. A few people turn back after 200 yards because they can't really swim that well and they just wanted the money. A few others drop out about a mile because they see sharks kind of swimming around in the water. Still others get tangled up in some seaweed and they stop. By the five-mile mark, only 150 swimmers are left. By the 10-mile mark, only 10 are left. Five others drop out in the next couple of miles. At the 20-mile mark, two swimmers are still in the water, and then only one is left, and that's a woman who won two Olympic medals for distance swimming. Finally, she gives up about 25 miles into it, and she's pulled into the boat, and she says to the rich person, I deserve the money because I lasted longer than anybody else. And when he refuses, she says, well, at least you ought to give me a portion of it for representing the distance I swam. But he refuses again, citing the rules of the contest. It's all or nothing. It wouldn't have mattered if she dropped out 100 yards from the beach in Honolulu. Missing by a little is the same as missing by a lot. The only way to win the 100 million was to swim all the way. No partial payments. The same is kind of true in the spiritual realm While it's true that some of us are relatively better than some other people, it doesn't make that much difference to God. Suppose a person could somehow be good enough to end up six inches from the gate of heaven when they die. Would they go? Would they go in? The Apostle Paul says, if we're outside the gate, we're we're outside. Being outside is not being inside, and that's what matters. Close doesn't count. Paul uses a very strong word to describe the situation of those who try to achieve their salvation by their, by their good works. And he says they're cursed. That means they're under the sentence of death. They are rejected, judged, condemned. That applies to everyone without, without exemption. The whole human race, the Bible says, is under a curse because of our failure to be able to keep the law perfectly. Apart from God's grace, we're all by nature spiritually dead and lost and separated from God. We are in a truly hopeless condition. That's the end result of trying to get to heaven by our own merit. God's way, though, is the way of faith. So how is it that God can give us the salvation on the basis of simple faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is in verse 13. Christ became the curse for us. The last part of verse 13 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21 which says that anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. In the Old Testament, criminals were often put to death by stoning, but in the New Testament times, in the Roman Empire, particularly, crucifixion became popular and a criminal was hung on a tree as a visible sign of rejection. By, by being on the cross, Jesus took the pain, the shame, the wrath of God, he bore the punishment that was meant for us, he stood in our place, he suffered for our sin, he paid a debt that he didn't know, and at worst, at the worst of his sufferings, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those mysterious words mean that in that terrible moment, the father had to turn away from his son, this was the cost of our salvation. He set us free from the curse by taking the curse on Himself. He was rejected so that we would not be rejected. He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. He was punished so that we would not be punished. And He took the curse so that the curse could be lifted from us. Now imagine that somewhere out in the universe there's this large pit. And this pit contains all the sins that have ever been committed. The pit is deep, it's dark, it's indescribably foul. All the evil deeds that men and women have ever done are there. All the evil and filth in the world continues to flow into that pit. Now imagine that when Jesus was on the cross, that pool of evil is emptied onto him. It's vile, it's toxic, it's deadly, it's filled with pain and suffering. And when God looked at his son... He saw the pit of sin emptied on him. No wonder he turned away. Who could bear to watch it? All the lust, all the broken promises, all the murders, killings, hatred between people, all the theft, all the adultery, drunkenness, all the bitterness, greed, gluttony, drug abuse, all the crime, every evil and wicked deed that was ever done, all of it was laid on Jesus. And if we ask why such a drastic remedy was necessary, It's because sin infuriates God. What seems to us as just a small thing is a huge thing to God. And the punishment must either be poured out on us or poured out on someone else who could be a substitute for us. As one author put it, the question isn't how God, being what he is, could send us to hell, but rather how can God, being what he is, not send us to hell? Someone had to pay the price. But here's some good news. The cross... The cross is the dividing line of history. It is the most important event since the creation of the universe. We must never minimize the cross. All that God has done for us to save us comes by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And because the cross is so important, salvation must therefore be, come by believing, not by achieving. It's not what we do that saves us. It's what Jesus already did 2,000 years ago, and we look to him for our salvation. That means that anyone could be made right with God anytime, anywhere. Salvation is free for the asking, but it leaves us with a choice. Will we accept it, or will we reject it? The choice is ours. Verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us, The us in that verse is anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. So that leaves us with the big question. Have you accepted Christ's offer? Or are you still on the outside kind of looking in? You aren't in the us just because you go to church every Sunday or just because you're a good person. The only people um, on the inside are the people who have turned from their sin and trusted Jesus Christ as their lord and savior and that's the question that we all have to answer have we trusted christ have we accepted the free gift of salvation have we found the freedom that comes from knowing christ and living for christ let's pray god we admit that we do need you and that in the end uh We fall short of the perfection that you demand and desire. We confess that we have done many things that don't please you. We've lived our life for ourselves, and today we come to ask for your forgiveness. We believe that you died on the cross for us to save us. You did what we could not do for ourselves, so we come and ask you to take control of our life. We give it to you. Help us to live every day in a way that pleases you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that for those who trust In faith in Jesus Christ, you have promised eternal life with you. Amen.